Welcome back to another episode of Meet the Creatives. My guest today, I cannot even believe I'm saying this out loud, Larry McReynolds, broadcast analyst for NASCAR on Fox and Speed. Uh, Larry, it's an honor and a privilege to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. No, I appreciate you having me. We, uh, we know things are definitely still far from normal, mm-hmm. but we do feel like we're, we can at least see the light at the end of the tunnel now. And I think the more that, that people around our country will, will be smart and listen to what our government officials are telling us, what our healthcare officials are telling us, and not get too aggressive too fast, I think that's going to be the, the best road to our recovery that we can possibly have. For those that are, are not familiar with the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Larry McReynolds, he is has 23 Cup Series victories, 21 pole positions, two Daytona 500 wins, uh, and over the course of your 17-year uh, 17-year career as a crew chief, uh, you've worked with Ernie Irvin, Dale Earnhardt Sr., and uh, Davey Allison, who's now famous uh, Texaco Ford, captured 11 wins and three poles in just a single season. That's really good. So, yeah, it. Uh... I have to pinch myself when I look back at my career. Um, and those 11 wins, they really were they were not in a single season, but it was almost in like one calendar year. Right. Uh, a lot of 1991 and in 1992. But yeah, to, to be able to work for the owners that I worked for, Kenny Bernstein, who actually really gave me my first opportunity as a crew chief with the cup team that he owned, the 26 car. And then to work for Robert Yates from 1991 to 1996, and then to be with Richard Childers from 97 until the end of my crew chief career before I moved to Fox in 2000, kind of a, you know, you look at a couple of those owners, they're both Hall of Famers, and yeah, the the list of drivers, you know, uh, Ricky Rudd is one of those drivers, Dale Jarrett, Mike Skinner, but yeah, one of my favorites. (laughs) <laughs> some some of the Hall of Famers, you know, Dale Earnhardt's a Hall of Famer. Davey Allison's a Hall of Famer. Dale Jarrett's a Hall of Famer. I, I, I worked with David Pearson, not as his crew chief, but as a crew member in the very early part of my career, another Hall of Famer. Um, I, I have to pinch myself every day to realize how great my career has really been. Absolutely. Uh, I remember my vividly, you know, one of my earliest memories was I, uh, my dad is a pastor. And every uh, day after church on Sunday, uh, we would always go to somebody's house and we'd be stuck somewhere for hours on end while all the adults talked. And I remember vividly the moment that I first saw, uh, it was Jeff Gordon's uh, Rainbow Warrior paint scheme. And I saw that and I was like, what is this? I need to know all about this. But take me back to the beginning of your journey. You know, what was the first memory of, of NASCAR and when did you know that you wanted to make this your career? Yeah, my my journey is a pretty interesting journey. You know, I'm from Birmingham, Alabama, uh, an only child. I I came from really no racing background whatsoever. My mom or dad was not really a race fan. I think I did have an uncle, my dad's brother, that did a little dirt track racing well before I was ever born, but really not any racing-oriented family whatsoever. But my grandfather, my aunt's uh, my my mom's dad and then my aunt, they were, uh, my mom's sister, they were kind of race fans. So we lived within walking distance of the short track there in Birmingham, BIR. And every Friday night, the three of us would, would walk down there and, and go to the, to the local races. Every Friday night, pretty much from late April to late August, early September. And then my aunt ended up, she was really more like a a sister to me because she was only 10 years older than I, and we were very close. 
Uh, she ended up getting married. Her husband was a race fan. So then every Friday night, the four of us would go. And he was a really good mechanic. And my aunt was kind of a hot rodder to some degree. So this one season, I think it was 1975, I was maybe a sophomore in high school. They started this brand new division called a street stock hobby division. It was a stocker race car as you could think about running. You, you took the seats out, the windows out, you welded a few roll bars in it, you put the fuel tank up in the trunk, you're able to work on the engine a little bit, put a number on the side and you had a race car. Well, this particular night that this series debuted, my aunt looked at her husband and said, I could, I could do that. I'd like to run this division. So her husband, my uncle, I think uh, looked at her and of course, tongue in cheek said, well, go out and get you some sponsors. We'll build your race car. Well, she called his bluff. She went out and found more sponsors than almost we could fit on that race car. I'm sure a lot because of being a female in a man's sport. And so my little race car career started right there in their basement there, uh, not too far from the racetrack. We built her first race car. And, and you know, she didn't have a lot of success, you know, and a lot due to funding. Right. But racing is like a disease. It gets in your bloodstream, and there's no getting it out. Absolutely. And I decided I really enjoyed working on race cars, but I wanted a little more out of it than just going with her and watching her run 8th, 10th, 12th in this street stock hobby division. So I started working for uh, a local late model owner, Bobby Ray Jones there, that that had the likes of Dave Mater III that had raced for him, Mike Alexander. And we won a lot of races throughout the Southeast. And I graduated from high school. I went to work in a junkyard, a salvage yard there in Birmingham. So I'd work in the salvage yard all day go work on those race cars all night, sometimes literally all night long, and go home just in time enough to shower, go back to work at the junkyard, and this was just a vicious cycle. I decided I wanted a little more out of that than, than doing this. I wanted to go to NASCAR. So September of, of 1980, I packed up and moved to the Carolinas. Much to my mom and dad's dismay, they, they said, you know, this is the craziest thing we've ever seen. You'll be back in six months. You'll be broke. You'll be hungry. We'll feed you, but we're not going to bail you out of debt. And as much as I respected everything that my mom and dad always told me, I said, I got to go try this. You're probably right. It probably won't work, but I have to go try it. And uh, that was 40 years ago. My mom and dad are both deceased, but I'm, I'm proud to say that I'm still here. And it's been an amazing career for me as a crew member, crew chief, and now 20 years as a broadcaster. I was actually really uh, inspired by your story in preparation. You know, I've always followed you on TV, but as I kind of took a deep dive into all things Larry McReynolds, I was really inspired uh, to read that. I've made some friends at NASCAR and, um, you know, I kind of, I'm in New York here and everything's again in the Carolinas. And uh, I was kind of inspired to read that even yourself that you, because you always assume that everyone who's in NASCAR, they have deep family ties with it. And um, you know, for me, it's a, it's a huge passion and I, you know, I have these communication skills and I've always thought about potentially you know, doing broadcasting or something like that. And we could talk about that in a little bit, but I was really sure. inspired to see that, you know, that, that you were a little bit outside, outside the box too. It's like that, uh, it's like that scene in uh, Dumb and Dumber. And it's like, you're, so you're telling me there's a chance. That's how I <laughs> and that was absolutely the case when I moved from Birmingham to Charlotte, it was a brand new little race team just starting, right. uh, they were going to run the full schedule in 1981. 
Um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was a big gamble, but what did I have to lose? You know, I wasn't married, you know, I wasn't tied to anything or anybody. If it didn't work out, I'd be back in Birmingham working on late models and probably back in that junkyard, but it, it definitely worked out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you've obviously had a great career, as we mentioned with all the different people that you've worked with over the years, uh, perhaps the greatest and most well-documented accomplishment of your career. Uh, was in 1998. You're probably sick of talking about this at this point, but uh, when you guided never Dale get sick. <laughs> <laughs> when you uh, guided Dale Earnhardt Sr. to his first uh, first and only Daytona 500 victory, you know, there's that classic soundbite: 20 years of trying, 20 years of frustration. I just love that. Uh, and whenever people you know want to get into NASCAR, it's one of the first clips I show them. But you know, having done it twice, what does it feel like to win the Daytona 500? And, and what was it like on that day? Yeah, I mean, I, I was very fortunate to win it in 1992 in my second year with Davey Allison, the 28 car in Robert Yates Racing. Uh, Davey's first and what ended up being his only win in the Daytona 500. And then going to Richard Childress Racing at the beginning of 97, uh, it was a tough decision. You know, Robert Yates was like family, but I just was ready for something new, kind of a clean sheet of paper. And when Richard Childress and Dale Earnhardt are trying to get you to come to work and be the crew chief of that three car, I had to take a hard look at it. And I remember going to, to Daytona in 1997, right. knowing how many years Dale had been to Daytona, how, many, how close he had come. I mean, this guy had led two to go, one to go, half a lap to go, right. but just had never been able to close the deal. And that first race in 97, which was the Daytona 500, we, we had a really good race that day. It had kind of been an up and down day. We'd kind of had a rough day on pit road with some, some snafus on pit stops. But I looked up with about 20 or 25 laps to go, Rob, and, and we were leading with no more trips to pit road needed. And I remember with about 20 to go, I looked at Richard Childress, the owner, and I said, what do you think? He went, been here way too many times. Yep. And with about 11 or 12 to go, I realized what he was talking about because – we were barrel rolling down the back straightaway where he had got a little bit tight up off turn two and Jeff Gordon had gotten to his left rear quarter panel and spun him. And when he turned sideways, the car started barrel rolling. Right. And the weird thing or the, the most unusual thing is we went winless in 1997. I mean, it was a, it was the toughest year of my career as a crew chief because here I had went to work with probably the greatest race car driver ever to grip a steering wheel. I had all the success at Robert Yates Racing, and I go to the three car, and we can't even win a race. Right. So not only did we accomplish finally winning him the Daytona 500, uh, we broke a very long winless streak, and it was my first win with that three car. I, I knew how much that man wanted to win that 500, and it, it meant a lot to me to be a part of helping him accomplish that. I remember in victory lane, you know, again, it was my second win, win it in 92. But I remember in Victory Lane, it was one of those moments I'll never, ever forget. Things had kind of settled down a little bit, but pictures were still being taken. And I remember kind of taking a step back and just kind of watching Dale and Teresa Earnhardt and watching Richard and Judy Childress, our owners. They had never won the 500. Right. Watching what it meant to them, it was almost like watching your kids unwrap their presents on Christmas morning. And it was one of those moments that I will, will never, ever forget. And to be able to win the Daytona 500 twice with Davey Allison, with Dale Earnhardt, knowing how much it meant to them, 
knowing it was their only win in the 500 and that it's two drivers that's not with us. Those two trophies downstairs in, in my trophy case, they are at the forefront. And I walk by those two trophies every single day and look at them and, uh, and smile because it, it was two very special wins. Absolutely. That's an incredible story. I love hearing that. So when I was a kid, I got into NASCAR, you know, from that day after church, seeing the rainbow car. And then eventually I got my mom into it and got my grandpa Bob into it. Uh, and, you know, just as a personal note, um, you know, my grandpa on Valentine's Day weekend, a week of the Daytona 500 was diagnosed uh, with cancer. And it was just awful. And, you know, those are two things I, you know, I love my, I'm named after him, Grandpa Bob. I'm, I'm Rob. And uh, he's, I'm happy to say that he's doing much better, much better now. But uh, between him being in the hospital, you know, and then with Ryan Newman, that really kind of threw me and, and really was jarring. And then with everything that's happened, but you know, you guys over the years have really been there for us and provided a lot of joy. And then, you know, uh, COVID-19 comes along and, and kind of th that all happens. Um, but I just, I'm really grateful for um, the way that you guys responded in, in that difficult time, you know, during COVID-19. And it really felt like in my life that the wheels were falling off. And I've, you know, since gone to therapy, I'm talking to people feeling a lot better and, you know, NASCAR is back, so I'm feeling better now. But I remember the one day that I knew that it was going to turn around was I went on Twitter and you were there in all your glory. I think you were in the same shirt you're wearing right now. And you were talking about how NASCAR was going to go and, and do iRacing. And you, yeah. and I remember that I have it saved. I think I retweeted it. Um, that was a really special moment. And I know that from a, a previous interview that, you know, you have always kind of looked for, um, you know, in difficult times to look for the good in the bad. And you've certainly along the way, had some really difficult times, but that day was really great. But could you maybe, you know, it's not always a Daytona 500 wins, there's ups and downs in life. Could you maybe speak to that philosophy of finding the good and the bad and how that applies to today? Yeah, you, you know, Rob, I'm 61 years old and I've got to say uh, this, this time period that we, we are in, we have been in, scariest I've ever been in my life. Yeah, 9-11 was scary. But I think shortly after 9-11, you, you knew that we were coming back. Right. You no, know, it seemed to be more of a known. I mean, we will never, ever forget that day as long as we live right. uh, in the people's lives that were impacted, the people that were, were injured, that lost their lives, the frontline workers that lost their lives that day, the families that lost loved ones and friends. We'll never, ever forget them. Right. And we will honor them every single year, especially on September the 11th. Right. But I think because of all the unknowns with this COVID-19, every day was scary. And I remember sitting here in my very office on a Friday, uh, I'm gonna say 12 to 13 weeks ago, roughly, and the unknown that was there. I got a phone call that morning that said, do not go to the studio, that we were not gonna cover practice in Atlanta, that the schedule was changing and scared to death. And then of course, a few hours later, everything got scratched at Atlanta Motor Speedway and the race teams and everybody was headed home. Yeah, you guys were holding then, out, I remember that. I never, yeah, yeah, and then that we got into that following, you know, we spent that weekend and it's like you were lost. We didn't know where to go, what to do, and had no idea what the future held, zero. And then about midweek of that week, our bosses reached out to Mike Joy, Jeff Gordon, myself, and said, would you guys entertain doing some iRacing events? Heck yeah, we'll do anything. 
And I didn't even know how to spell iRacing. <laughs> and to be able to go to the studio that following weekend, which would have been the weekend that we would have been in Miami Homestead, and to do that, I just so proud of our bosses at Fox and FS1 that was aggressive enough to try something. And, and we went in that studio to do that iRacing events, Rob, and, and we had no idea. We had no idea how it was going to be, how yeah, it was going to work, <laughs> if we were going to have 10 viewers or 10,000 viewers. And to do that for seven consecutive weeks, well, we, we didn't do one Easter weekend. We took Easter weekend, but to do seven out of eight weeks and had fun with it. And, you know, we were not turning our back on what our country and our world was going through. Right. That the people that were suffering from the disease, the people that had lost their jobs, the, the people that had lost family members and friends, we were not turning our back on that. But our goal was to go in that studio for an hour and a half or two hours, one day a week, and just provide some entertainment and create a distraction from what was going on in our country and in our world. It was a distraction for us. It's something we needed. Right. And I'm just very proud that we were able to do that, that we didn't just roll over and say, you know what, we just got to wait and see. And our, our bosses could have very easily just rolled old races, you know, every weekend from Saturday and Sunday, but that, that wasn't what they, they wanted to do. And, you know, Robert Yates taught me a really important lesson that, that I try to live by today, whether it's on a professional level or on a personal level. He said, the person, we don't like change. None of us like change. You know, we're creatures of habit. If something's going good, the last thing we want to do is change it. But the people that do embrace change or the person that embraces change, that's the people, that's the person that will prevail. And in his message to me when I was his crew chief is we would get a rule change and I would just lose my mind. It's like, why are they doing this? This is yeah. going <laughs> to hurt us. I don't know how we can do this. And he would say, stop. The person that looks at this change and goes, how can I make this change good? How can I make this change better? That's the person that's going to prevail. An example I'm going to give you, Rob, is for 15 years I've been in the broadcast booth with Mike Joy and Daryl Walcher. 15 years, 2001 through 2015. And headed into 2016, they hired Jeff Gordon, which was a no-brainer. Are you kidding me? A guy that had won 93 races, four championships. You're going to put him in, a, in the booth with Daryl Walcher, who had won 83 races and three championships. This is a no-brainer. But what was I going to do? And they came up with a plan that they're going to create a position for me in a separate booth. I'm still going to be an analyst. And you know what? I could have fought it. I could have stomped and snarled and complained and moaned and groaned more than likely had I done that when my contract was up at the end of 2016, I probably was going to be done with Fox, but I made the decision, whatever they do with me, wherever I go, I'm going to take that change and I'm going to figure out how to make it good and I'm going to succeed with it. And I feel like that I was able to do that. And that's the same thing that my attitude, quite honestly, I think our attitude with Fox was during this pandemic. And then I think it's also our approach, even though we're back at the track racing, it's still different. It's one day shows, no practice, no qualifying, no fans. It's far from normal 
but we're just trying to create some entertainment for our fans that hopefully takes their mind off of what's going on right now, still today in our country and in this world. Absolutely. I think that I, I screamed like a, like a girl when, they, when you guys came back. I was down in my garage. I made like a projector. And, and when you guys came back and went green, I'll tell you, man, I, I cried. It was, it was amazing just to, to hear the roar of the engines again. And uh, it was really incredible. I know it's been great for my family and definitely has infused some optimism in our life. So even though it's, uh, you know, without the fans and stuff like that, as a fan, I could say personally that it, it has been absolutely incredible. And you guys came back uh, in a huge way, uh, Jeff Gordon posted, you guys had 6.32 million viewers uh, for Darlington. Now, I, I don't know what it was like in the heyday, but for now, that, sound, that seems like a lot of people that really tuned in. And, um, you know, for people that are, are new to the sport, my friend, by the way, I've been kind of an evangelist for NASCAR recently because there's nothing else on TV and it's a unique moment. My friend Thomas, I got a plus one. He's been asking me questions and you couldn't believe it when I said that I was interviewing Larry Mack today, but I'm just going <laughs> to Well, I'm glad to be here with you. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, for people that are new to this sport, uh, what do you personally love about NASCAR? You know, I think for me, one of the things I've tried to explain, because people always say, you know, people just make them left turns and do, you know, I think if you tune in passively to NASCAR, I could see why it wouldn't immediately engage you. But for me, I call it like a 200 mile an hour game of chess. And I know that you love the, the strategy and the nuance and the drama of it. You know, perfect example, I'm a Chase Elliott fan. And you know, the drama the other night that unfolded, it was like it was all in the bag in the last moment turn of events. I mean, you couldn't write a more dramatic script than that. Right. But for people that are kind of new to it, what do you love about it? And what do you tell people when, they, you know, when you're trying to convince people to come to the sport? Yeah, I, I mean, there's other sports that, that have similar situations, but, but we're not one team versus one team. You know, we have 40 teams on most given race days in the Cup Series out there, one versus 39. And it, it's, it's hard to win a Cup race. You know, when you think about you got a one in 40 shot right. of being the team and the driver, the crew chief that wins that race, yeah, I won 23 races to your point earlier – but I started 470 races as a crew chief. That means I lost 447 races. But, but I am very proud that I was able to win 23. But I know for my 17 or 18 years as a crew chief, my passion was about trying to outsmart the competition, trying to make that call on, on the top of that pit box that would win you the race. And, and I made some calls that lost us a race, just like Alan Gustafson did most recently in the Coke 600 with yep. Chase Elliott, you know. Uh, I love Alan. I got to meet him this, this past I was walking down pit road with my mom. We had the hot pass. And I, like, stopped dead in the tracks. And she was like, who is it? Is it Jeff? And I said, no, Mom, that's Alan Gustafson. She goes, who the hell is Alan Gustafson? I was like, he was Jeff Gordon's crew chief. He's Chase. I love Alan. And yeah. that's a, I have empathy for that situation because, you know, had it worked out, he would have been a hero. But it did it back and it backfired and the scrutiny, especially in today's day and age. That's got to well, be tough, man. One thing I've tried to do as a broadcast analyst for 20 years, coming from being a crew chief, is I try not to tell people that that was a bad call. Right. You know, as much as you can. I just try to. I just try to put out there. This could be the consequences of this call. Right. And I know in the Coke 600 when that caution came out. I said on the broadcast, if you're up front, you cannot pit here. Track mm -hmm. position is king. Yeah. And, you know, for days after that race, 
we were breaking down, should they have pitted or should they have not? Alan Gustafson had about 10 to 20 seconds to make that call. Right. And then you have to live with it. Yeah. But that's the things that I do enjoy about, about our sport. And I guess now as a broadcast analyst is I still have that passion for strategy. I think that's one reason that Fox has put me in the role. And now when I go in the broadcast booth, to some degree, I feel like I'm crew chief for all 40 teams because I'm looking at the strategy this team's doing and the team, the strategy this thing. But I think one thing that I love about our sport, and I, I know I'm a little bit prejudiced about NASCAR, is just the passion that our athletes have for this sport. You know, you look at our all-star race every year, and, and we've not run it yet this year, and we, it's still an unknown if and when we're gonna run it. We do hear it will happen, we just don't know when. Normally, it would have happened a couple of weeks ago here at Charlotte. But you, you look at the, the NBA All-Star game. Those guys just go out there and, and they're just kind of having fun. And I'm not, I'm not gonna say they're not trying, but, but there's not a lot of effort. You, you right. look at the, the Major League All-Star game. It's just kind of people just kind of having fun. Right, smiling the, and the Pro Bowl. Right. I mean, the, they don't even really block or hit each other. And that's okay. I know they're trying not to get hurt. Right. I'm telling you, when they drop the green flag on our all-star race, where there's nothing on the line, there's no points, there's no consequences if you get wrecked out, these guys are racing that race as hard as they do any other race. Mm-hmm. Not because of the million dollars to win, but because it's a race, there's a victory lane, and there's a trophy. I, I look back at the two all-star races that I was fortunate enough to win with Davey Allison in 91 and 92. Those wins, they're just as special as the other wins because it was a race, it was competition, and it was it was beating all the other teams in that race. And, I, you know, another thing that drives me and it's one thing that breaks my heart right now that we are racing without the fans in the stands. The passion for our that our fans, our NASCAR fans have for this sport, they are second to none. I, I know NFL fans and college football fans and NBA fans and hockey fans, they're passionate. But no, right. nothing like the NASCAR fan. And that's what breaks my heart that we are having the race right now without fans, but it's the only way – we could get back. Yes. If we waited till we were able to have fans, one, there's no way we'd get all the races in, and there's even a chance we may have not even raced in 2020. So the hopes are that the fans, I know they're disappointed not to be there, but hopefully they're enjoying the broadcast right now on Fox and FS1. And I go back to something I said earlier, if everybody will just adhere to what's being asked of us as a society, to, to the social distancing, wearing the mask, staying home unless you have to, the quicker we look at those things and adhere to those things, the quicker we can be back. Amen. Absolutely. I love it. Switching gears here, no, no pun intended. Uh, I'm sure you've heard that joke before. Um, <laughs> you know, my, my podcast seeks to bridge the gap between entry-level creative professionals uh, and the industry's best, like yourself. Uh, you know, today, this, this one is for people that are in the broadcasting space, you know, sports journalism. Um, you know, so many of your colleagues are personal heroes of mine, obviously yourself, Mike Joy. Uh, I watched uh, countless uh, off-track with Jamie Little interviews, trying to figure out the nuances of her communication skills. Just 
NASCAR on Fox is filled with broadcasting professionals. Matt Yoakum, all these people have been, in a, in a way, with, without NASCAR on Fox and your broadcasting style, I don't even, that's like why I have a show. So, um, but a few questions for people that are just starting out. So um, NASCAR is a place that a lot of people would love to work, especially in sports broadcasting. And I think what's really admirable about NASCAR on Fox is the retention rate of people who work there. The people mm -hmm. that worked on NASCAR on Fox when I was a kid are the same people that work there now. So when you're making hires, I'm not exactly sure how involved in that process you are, but um, what are some of the things that you're looking to see? And what are some of the things that might disqualify or show that someone's not quite ready to make the market? Yeah, I think one thing that, that really impresses me uh, about someone is I go back to something we just spoke about a little while ago, the, the, the passion. Right. Uh, are, are, is it a job or is it a passion? Because I really believe when you look at what we do, yeah, it's a job and we all make our living. We all make good livings. Right. But that's not why I do it. You know, I do it because I, I, I love what I do. You know, people ask me what I do for a hobby. I don't have any hobbies. I, I feel, <laughs> I <want a> yeah, <laughs> I feel blessed and fortunate that I'm one of an individual that can make my living at what I enjoy. I don't fish. I don't hunt. Yeah, I enjoy family time and spending time with them, which certainly we've been able to do a little bit more here over the last two or three months. But my passion is what I do, and I do not look at it as a job. Right. I look at it and hit the ground running every single day. I think sometimes two things that gets people in trouble in broadcasting is, one, trying to be someone that they're not. It, you know, one thing that, that our bosses at Fox told Mike Joy, Daryl Walter, myself, Way back 20 years ago, as we got ready to do that first season in 2001, just be yourself. Just be yourself and have fun. And I, I, do, I even see some, some NASCAR broadcasters throughout time that they were this person when you were just having a conversation with them. And then when the light would go on and the mic was hot, they tried to do something else. And it just don't work. Right. Just be yourself. The other thing is, and I think this gets some people in trouble, and don't get me wrong, we all have an ego. We would right. not be doing what we're doing if we didn't have an ego. Yeah, there's been some tension in the booth over the years. It's, it's, but I think yeah. one thing that has made our NASCAR on Fox group work, and, and I have gave the analogy. When you look at Mike Joy, Daryl Waltra, Jeff Gordon now, Larry McReynolds, are you kidding me? That's enough ego. <laughs> to fill a room and start oozing out the cracks of the door. But first and foremost, the biggest part of our ego, and I know this and I say this with confidence, I think it's one reason to your point, so many of us have stayed together for so long. The biggest part of our ego is let's just have a good broadcast. You know, it, it doesn't matter if Jeff says it, if before he retired, if Daryl said it, if I say it, just so we say it. It's not, about, it's not about putting notches in the microphone of, well, I said that, I said that, I said that. As long as we did it as a team. And I think that's one reason we have worked. I think when a broadcaster gets on an agenda and he's more trying to grow his or her brand than the brand of the, of the team, no different in a race team. That's what busts race teams up. When you get a guy that gets on an ego trip 
or trying to grow his brand rather than just worry about what we can do to go out there and beat the competition, it gets broadcasters in trouble. One of the things that I love, and I'm really grateful to uh, Chris Littman for getting me the hot pass, getting to see everything up close and personal, you know, seeing on pit road. Um, I've always kind of admired, like I said, people like Jamie Little who are like, uh, you know, right, right behind the wall talking about that in real time. I was amazed to see, number one, the fact that you don't really realize it on TV, but when you got to run, like you got to run like all the way down and, and, and it's crazy. The production crew has got to come with you. The swarm that comes around, like when someone's winning, like when I, uh, when I went there, the, you couldn't even get to where like the, the box was. Um, and just seeing all the technical aspects of it, like there was a screen and there's data on the screen and they're mm. talking with people, there's notes. Like I thought like you, I would just be behind the thing and you know, Jeff Gordon coming in, taking four tires and fuel, you know, back to you in the studio, Larry McGreddle. It's like, it's not that at all. And I love seeing, you know, I wasn't obviously up in the booth with you guys, but can you maybe talk about the technical side of things and how does that all work? And so you guys aren't always stepping on top of each other kind of thing. Well, from day one, our bosses at Fox, whether it's the three of us in the booth now, you know, at one last year, last few years has actually been four of us, whether it's one of our four pit reporters, is, is their, their philosophy is we want, it to make, we want you to make the viewer feel like that the group of you is sitting around in a living room or at yeah. a bar having, like a, having a drink mm -hmm. and you're just watching a race and you're talking about it. And when people have normal conversation, you interrupt each other. You talk on each other. That's just, that's just the way a conversation works. Now, you don't want it to happen all the time. Right. But I think one thing that we work hard at is we listen to each other. If you don't listen to each other, then you're probably going you're, you're gonna to step on each other more. Yeah. But, you, you know, it's, if you and I are having a conversation and I make a comment and you really don't, you don't respond to it, it probably means you didn't listen to what I said and vice versa. So we try to listen to each other. We, we try to make sure that it's no different than if all of us were standing around or sitting around watching it just having fun and we're all commenting on it. We're all, we're all being armchair racers. <laughs> I, I think that's what makes it work. And that, that, you know, you talked about the pit reporter. That's what's been the challenge as we've come back is we don't have our four pit reporters right now. You know, our four normally is Jamie Little that you mentioned, Matt Yoakum, Regan Smith and Vince Welch. And other than the Coke 600, when we did have two, they did allow us to have two with Regan and with Jamie it's one pit reporter per race now. It's all part of, of adhering to what NASCAR, the tracks, just trying to – we're all trying to do it with as few of people as possible because that, that keeps the risk a lot lower. Yeah. So that, that, the pit reporter has almost had to, to play a lot more roles now versus just giving pit reports. He's had to do interviews. He or she's had to do interviews. They've had to uh, – give us insight on other things about the race, things that normally if we had the, the analyst there, if we had the studio analyst there, if we had four repeat reporters. So it's been a bit of a challenge, but I go back to what we spoke about earlier. We just have figured out how to make it work versus worry about what we don't have. Think about what we do have and how we can maximize that. 
over the years, NASCAR on Fox has felt like family to me. And I think that that's because of what you're talking about. You know, it feels like you're in the living room. It, it almost felt like it was an extension of the room that we're sitting in. And we're definitely NASCAR on Fox fans. NBC is cool. And, you know, I love Junior and Jeff Burton and all that stuff. And, and uh, for some weird reason, the combination of Rick Allen's voice and running down the dream sound really great together. But I'm always like kind of bummed out when NASCAR on Fox ends. So I think we appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's been really good. Um, you know, there's so many memorable moments that have happened. Um, my mom actually told me she's, you know, she was really proud of me that I was talking to you today, but she said that if I get Daryl Wall a trip, she's going to have a heart attack. So I, I, <laughs> I would not send the invite. I talked to, uh, actually talked to Mike Joy on uh, LinkedIn. I think we're going to probably schedule something for June. Awesome. So, yeah, I know. I cannot believe it. It's so funny. Like for anyone that is afraid to reach out to their heroes or afraid to, to get in touch, sometimes all you got to do is ask. And it's really been uh, you know, I understand at this point in my interviewing career that people put their pants on one leg at a time. Well, but, uh, my, Mike Joy always, he's always said this. Yeah. If you don't ask, the answer will always be no. Exactly. Yeah. I have a, a friend, uh, a very uh, New York friend, John Contino, and he says, he says it with a Long Island accent. All you got to do is ask. That's what, that's what he told me, and I've been doing it ever since. But so many great memories. Uh, you know, uh, my mom obviously loves Daryl Waldship. And, and all you guys, but in your time working at NASCAR on Fox, what have been some of your favorite moments? And there, there have been so many over the years. I, I can't pick a personal favorite, but what have your personal favorites been? Yeah, it, it would be so hard to, to pinpoint just one, you know, because I've been doing it now. This is my 20th year. So when you realistically, when you think about it, half of my NASCAR career, this is my 40th year in NASCAR. Half of it's been, been spent with the Fox Sports team. Uh, a third of my life has been as a broadcast analyst wow. for NASCAR on Fox. But we, we definitely had some special moments. I think some of those special race calls uh, that we were able to make as a team, I think back to that race at Darlington, either 03 or 04 with Kurt Busch and uh, Ricky Craven going back. Have you ever? No, I've never. Exactly. <laughs> that, that was a very That's special. That's my personal favorite. I love it. I think back to the Atlanta race, Kevin Harvick, only his second or third start in that RCR car just a few weeks after we lost Dale, the race between he and Jeff Gordon. Uh, that was a very special moment. All of the Daytona 500s that we've done, and, and we just ended up doing our 17th Daytona 500 because even though we've been doing it 20 years, the first six years, it was an alteration, alternation between NBC and Fox. So we only did three of the first six, but we've done every one since 07. Wow. Every one of those have been very special for many different reasons. Right. Um, but yeah, the, the list just goes on and on and on and on. But I think just being a part of that team, and you mentioned it earlier, uh, this is our 20th year. Myself, Mike Joy, Matt Yoakum, the three of us, we have been there together since day one. And there are a countless amount of people behind the scenes that's been there since day one. Artie Kempner, our director, he's been there since day one. Barry Landis, our producer. Pam Miller, our pit producer. And a good chunk of that production truck, they've been the same men and women, boys and girls, that was there when we first went to Daytona back in 2001, just to know, but I, I go back to what I said, I think because all of the people I named and then some, the biggest part of our ego, 
let's just have a good broadcast. And when you have that attitude, you can stay together a lot longer. Absolutely. I love that so much. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. You know, I, I think about where I was on, on Valentine's Day weekend, you know, getting the diagnosis from my grandpa and just having kind of felt like the wheels were coming off and then, you know, Ryan Newman and then COVID-19 and all this different stuff. I really cannot imagine my journey without you guys. And, you know, I, I know that I speak to my grandpa when I say that too. You guys have really been there for us over the years and so many great happy memories. So this has been fantastic. I, I don't want to beat a dead horse on that, but, uh, you know, it's been it's been really great. And I know that sometimes in my own experience with this podcast, you kind of, it's lost on you. Did that work? Was that good? But, uh, you know, for everything that you guys have, have sought out to do over the past 20 years, in my personal view, you've totally done it. So thank you. And uh, one last final question before we go. Who do you have, assuming it doesn't get rained out, do you think, do you think and by the way, your predictions are almost always right. And you've been, <laughs> and you've been jinxing it. If, listen, if, if Chase is, is, is on the last lap and coming to the green, oh, sorry, coming to the checkers, we can't say nothing. We can't jinx it. I always jinx it. We've had a rough year, but who do you have for, uh, for the win tonight? Yeah, I mean, Chase Elliott, you know, we've run, we've run seven races now, and he's had a race car that could have won four or five of those races very easily, a couple, most notably the last two at Darlington when he and Kyle Busch got together or Kyle Busch got into him and then what just happened in the Coke 600. Right. Uh, even though Martin Trex Jr., I won't say he's had a rough start. He's had a very fast race car every single week. Hard to believe not only is he looking for his first win, but he's still looking for his first top five. I kind of look hard at him. He seems to be the cream of the crop at Joe yeah. Gibbs, even though Denny Hamlin has won two races. Right. Denny has kind of been feast or famine with that 11 car. But I tell you, I think Chase's teammate, I, I don't know what has happened over there with Alex Bowman and that 88 team, but they are on fire. Of course, they got the win at Auto Club Speedway. Right. You know, it's, it's kind of a typical race. Yeah. I could sit here and probably name you 10 to 12 to 14 different drivers that realistically could win this thing tonight. But I think the real caveat is it's a very, very short race. Yeah. Short stages. You know, I think the stages are – are 55, 60, and 93. It's the same distance as the Xfinity Series race. 208 laps, 312 miles, half the distance of what we ran in the Coke 600. So yeah, that was long. You guys had to yeah. have a cup of coffee or something. Well, like I know how Jerry Lewis felt about his telethon now, but <laughs> yeah, it, it's, you know, it's the, the margin of error narrows up in this very short race. You know, you, yeah. you can't have a mistake and recover because everything is going to happen so fast and everything is so short. Is the rain in the forecast or, or so far so good? I feel better about tonight right. than I did last night. I never felt good about last night, but uh, we just got some weird weather right now in the southeast. I was looking at radar early this morning, and if you look at east of the Mississippi, especially below the Mason-Dixon line, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee, the Carolinas, southern part of Virginia, it looks like somebody went crazy with a box of Crayola crayons because there's red, there's yellow, there's blue, there's green everywhere. Right. But, but hopefully Mother Nature will go, you know what, I've, uh, I've screwed with y'all enough. I'm going to give y'all a few hours a night and get this race in. And then, of course, we're going to be at Bristol here. My just favorite. A couple of three short days with uh, our first short track race of 2020. 
Well, I'm excited. I'll, I'll let you get to work, but thank you so much. It's been an honor and a pr privilege, and uh, it'll seem exponentially cooler seeing you on TV tonight, assuming that we uh, go uh, green. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. No, I appreciate it. I always enjoy telling my story, uh, and, and I can tell you're very passionate about the sport, and we appreciate that. We appreciate our fans. This is going to look good on the resume. Well, in terms, in terms of my aspirations, this is a good start. I might have to, you know, it's so funny. I was telling my mom, I want to start a NASCAR podcast. And she's like, well, you've had a lot of luck. And then I was like, well, I got Larry McReynolds in the podcast. So maybe I'll read <laughs> Well, I, I've really enjoyed doing it. And the one thing I want to tell people that, that whether you want to be in NASCAR, whether you want to be a broadcaster, whether you want to be a, uh, a lawyer, a banker, whether you want, want to bake pizzas for a living, it, it does not matter. It takes everybody to make our world work. But no matter what you want to do, if you do believe in it and you do have the passion for it, don't let anybody tell you that you can't do it or that's not possible because if you don't think something's possible, you're looking at a guy and talking to a guy that, that had that passion, I believed in it, I wanted it bad enough. I was not going to give up. And eventually, patience and perseverance finally paid off. I'm literally going to go run a marathon after this. I feel so hyped <laughs> up. So thank you so much, Larry. It's been a privilege. Thank you again. Thank you. Appreciate right. you.